agree with the words of that hymn we just sang, well, you're halfway there, what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about some lessons in humility. Lessons in humility. Remember what I opened up our service tonight reading from Luke 14.11, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. That means brought down, lowered. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's raised up. That's from our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that we need to learn anything about humility? Well, because pride, which is the opposite of humility, is the norm in the country we live in. The culture of America is filled with pride. What are the heroes of America nowadays? Well, we can look around and see that men of business, with their wealth and position and the pride that they have from that, those are the men that are considered great heroes in our culture. Athletes who can boast about their accomplishments and their physical prowess on the athletic field, those are the heroes of America. How about the entertainment stars that seek to promote themselves and their next movie, TV show, book, whatever? Or how about all the conceited experts that are so drunk on education that they can presume to dictate what is the solution to any and every problem that mankind has, if we'll but listen to them? How about the politicians whose rhetoric, do you listen carefully to political campaigns and listen to the rhetoric? They promise everything, don't they? They can abolish hunger. They can abolish poverty. They can abolish ignorance. They boast of their party's aims and accomplishments. And it's all for naught. How much better off are we really from their aims? How many times are their aims frustrated? And yet God overrules them to bless us anyway. That's one of the reasons it's important for us to hear about humility tonight, because we live in a land that doesn't know what humility is. They may have dictionaries and online dictionaries at that 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 quick can come up with a definition for you, but they don't understand it. Brethren, we don't understand it, if we'll be honest enough to admit it. We ourselves are infected by the culture that we're a part of. We are all raised in America, and you and I every day have to fight it, have to fight its influence on us. Second reason that it's important for us to study this is that God considers humility a supreme virtue that we should have. It's one of the key virtues that we should cultivate in our life. And you know what the word cultivate means? It means it's just like what does a farmer do? He cultivates his crops. He goes out, he digs his land up, he plows it, he plants a seed, he waters it, He does everything he can to take care of it, to bring that harvest to bear. That's what we need to do with this grace in our lives, brethren. We need to be diligent in our lives to put it into place because it's not there naturally. Why is it important? God would tell us through the wise man Solomon in Proverbs 18, 12. Do you want position in this world? A position of honor before God himself? He tells us before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. And before honor is humility. You want to be promoted in in God's sight? I don't care about this world. Do you want to be promoted in God's sight? He says you've got to be humble first before you'll go anywhere. Do you want to be upheld in times of trouble, brethren? Do you personally want to know that you're protected and safe when trouble comes? Proverbs 29, 23 tells us, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Humility, brethren, is what will give you safety. Do you want true and lasting prosperity in this life? It's a vain life, but while you're here, don't you want to enjoy the good things that God has for us here? I mean, He's a glorious God, brethren. We're looking for an inheritance in heaven. That's where our main treasure is. But God has told us we can have some blessings and some enjoyment while we're here in this world. How are you going to enjoy those things? 
by humility in the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Amen. So, brethren, we need some humility. We need to understand what it is. We need to understand also that God deals with His people to teach us humility. Brethren, this is not an option you have tonight. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you that this is part of a Chinese menu, you know, that you can skip this one if you really want to and choose some other virtue. But no, God has made it so that we're going to have to learn it one way or the other. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy to me, is I've mentioned it before, is one of the most poignant books of the Bible. <clears throat> Deuteronomy is where Moses in one, I don't know, it maybe took a, how long, how long would it take you to read the entire book of Deuteronomy out loud? Because most of it is what Moses was telling the people. He's a hundred and, what is it, 120 years old, standing with the second generation that came out of Egypt. The first has just died off in the wilderness. He's standing on the border of Jordan, having given, uh, having given Joshua a charge to go into the land. And he's going back over, recounting all the law that God has given to them and their history to remind them of what they've gone through. At the end of this book, he goes up into the mountain, as Brother Jim pointed out today. He looks over and sees that promised land, and he goes to meet his God. That's why I say it's one of the most poignant books in the Bible, one of the most poignant writings of men, because here he is knowing he's not going to see those blessings, but giving charge to the generation who will see them. And in chapter 8, first few verses here, he's talking about and reminding them of some of the things that they went through. This comes down to well, verses 2 through 5, or this. Verses 7 through 9, he's telling them about the blessing that they will have in the land. Verses 10 through 18, he warns them about the danger of forgetting what God has done for them. The things that they've suffered. The verses I want to sit on, I'll let you go home tonight and read it. I don't really have time. I've got four pages I need to go through tonight that I want to show you. So we need to move quickly. So go home tonight and read the context. It's good. But there's three verses I want us to look at on this point that God deals with his people by teaching us humility. Look at verse 2. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. Why did he do it? To humble thee. And to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And brethren, when you look at that, did that mean God was ignorant? That God wasn't really sure what was in their hearts? That he needed a kind of a testing period to figure out what was there? No, our God knows everything. He knows everything before it happens. God was showing them what was in their hearts. Brethren, he was showing us what's in our hearts. When I said this evening that the reason that I'm, I know this message is from God, don't un misunderstand me there either. There's no, uh, I'm, I may say things wrong. I may miss turnaround verses. So Newell Eastland's going to make some mistakes tonight. Count on that, okay, because I'm a human being. But I know the essence of this message is from God. Why? Because I've seen it. I've seen it in this book. God's shown me here. God's shown me in our congregation, in the life of our church. And God's shown me in my life, in my own heart, in my own follies, in my own stupidity. So I know this is a message that's important for us, brethren. God led them through the wilderness. God took them through all the things they went through to humble them. How much pride can you get from going out and plowing a field and pulling a harvest? Well, there's some you can get there. How much pride do you get when you go out in the morning and you see the dew settling out there and it turns in these little white things that you go out and you gather up six days a week, right? And you grind it up and it's meal for you to eat on, right? You gather too much in a day and what happens? It turns into worms and smells nasty if you keep it overnight, right? But that sixth day, you go out and you gather twice as much to last you for that day and the next day. You save it up that sixth night for the seventh day. It doesn't show up that seventh day. But that you saved up is still good. 
and you grind it and you make your meal and you eat it the next day and anything left over the next day smells bad, right? What am I describing? Manna. Where did it come from? God. That's humbling, brethren. That's humbling to know that I've got to do it God's way. What if I offend this God and he decides he doesn't want to send us anymore? Where am I located right now in the history of of Israel? I'm in a desert. I'm sunk. I am totally dependent on God. We're in a desert place. Where are we going to water? Well, Moses goes up and he does a stupid thing. He, He strikes a rock with his staff. But what happens? Water comes out. Another time, we go to a place that has a well there, but it's poisoned. It's no good. Well, he takes some old dead tree and throws in it, and it's sweet, and we can drink it. Where's the pride of man in any of these things? It's gone. There's nothing but total dependence on God. God was teaching the nation an object lesson for 40 years as he killed off a generation who didn't believe him. Verse 3, And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. By the way, what does the word manna mean? Can anybody remember, if you listen in your marginal notes, what does the word manna mean? What is it? Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> they looked at the stuff the first time and said, What is this? Hebrew word for what is this is manna. Really bright, you know? I mean, I don't know about you, but I like little things like that, you know. You know, what is manna? What is it? (laughs) What is this stuff? It's what God gave you to survive off of. He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. That's where this first came from, brethren. Our Lord Jesus Christ just quoted it. Way back here, God was trying to get the lesson across. You live by what I give you. Verse 16. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. The provings of God, brethren, are for our good. What Israel went through, the difficulties we've gone through in our life are for our benefit. If we will be humble enough to learn the lesson. Okay? Well, I know from my own experience, and I know from the experience of having taught a few times for this good congregation, there's a couple of ways you could be taught, right? I could sit here. And I did this. I start out with a nice little outline, going through all this nice, neat stuff, you know, listing verses about why they go here and there and all that. And you could sit there and say, well, please give me the outline because I don't remember five things of what you told me. Or I can do it God's way. And I want to try to do it God's way. And that is, I want to look at five illustrations, five examples in Scripture. So we can see the spectrum of, and find out the spectrum of where people fall of humility. And let's learn from that. Amen. What do we say? Amen. Let's look at some real people that lived and think about that in our lives. Considering the spectrum, at one end you have the person who has no humility and no desire for it. What does God do to a man like that? He grinds him to powder. He holds him up as an example to smack down hard. He has a landing, and there is no remedy for his landing. At the other end, what do you have? You have somebody who is faithful, humble, humble under circumstances it's hard to even think about. Those are the two extremes I want us to look at and in between. The five people I've chosen, the first one we want to look at is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, a man God designed to put up to show us what he does to proud men. I've got him listed as the proud, autonomous man whom God destroyed. You didn't know you were going to get a grammar lesson tonight, did you, or vocabulary lesson. Your word for tonight, autonomous. What does the word autonomous mean? 
Dictionary definition is independent in government, having the right or power of self-government, having independent existence or laws. Somebody who sets himself up to write his own laws. And brethren, I pulled that word for a purpose. That's pride. And that's the opposite of humility. When you want to set yourself up as the judge and jury of what is right and wrong in your life, of what you ought to be doing, you you cease being humble. You're in the wrong camp. And Pharaoh is a prime example of this. Look over in Exodus chapter 5. Verse 2, Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. We won't turn to every passage here because I think the story of Pharaoh is fairly well known. I just want to point out a few things as we go through it, hopefully quickly. But in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, the first time Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, verse 1, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Now, Let's think for a second. What is this background? Brother Jim, talking about it this morning, especially after the service, made some excellent points. At this point in time, how was Pharaoh considered by the Egyptians? He was God, wasn't he? He was life and death. He was God living in their presence. How had that come about? By God's providence. And how? Through the nation of Israel. You say, what? Way back there when they first came down, when Joseph was sold into slavery, and Joseph came with his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, right? And Pharaoh appointed Joseph, a Hebrew, second only to Pharaoh in the throne as ruler over Egypt. What happened? The first year of famine, they come in, all the Egyptians came in and bought from all the seven years of plenty that Joseph in Pharaoh's name had stored up. They came to buy of it to survive. Their money ran out after a year. What came the second year? They came with all their animals, all their animals, and sold them to Pharaoh, sold them to Joseph in Pharaoh's behalf to buy grain. They're only two years into seven years of famine. What did they do the next year? They came back and said, look, we've got to be up, upright with you. We don't have anything left. We've already sold you our property. We've already sold our money. All that's left is to sell ourselves. What good is it to you if we die? We sell ourselves to you. We will become pharaohs. The people sold themselves to survive to Pharaoh. And Joseph said, fine. He rearranged them, put them in the most economical way to distribute them throughout the land. And then later on at the end of the famine, gave them out of the bounty that had been stored up, both to eat and to plant crops. And from that point on in in Egypt's history, one-fifth, of any produce that came from the people was given to Pharaoh. Under whose guidance? Joseph's. So who was it that gave Pharaoh his power from a political, practical standpoint? A Hebrew! But you see, a few generations go by, and we come up with a Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph. A man who's so full of himself that when Moses and Aaron come before him, What does he say? Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. See, Pharaoh wanted to call all the shots. He wanted to direct everything according to his will. He wanted to be his own source of law and not even worry about acknowledging anybody else. Just like many today. How many Americans want to call the shots themselves? Brethren, let's, let's stop playing games. Let's not worry about Americans. What about us? How often do we want to call the shots in our own life as if we're some great God? I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Pharaoh had to be ignorant of his own history. Pharaoh had to be ignorant of the evidence that God's Word tells us all, all around us. What a Psalm 19... Verse 1 say, Psalm 119, it tells us that the heavens declare the glories of God right. and the firmament showeth forth His handiwork. Day unto day, utter speech, and night unto night. It's all around us, brethren. You can't escape it. More than that, God has given us testimony in our own hearts. Isn't that what Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 1? That God has revealed Himself inside of each of us. 
And it's only when we turn away from that and say, no, we don't want to, we don't want to do that, that God says, fine, you don't want to acknowledge what is plain to your face, I'll turn you over to a reprobate mind. And you get all the wickedness that you see in that chapter talked about. So what does God do? How does God deal with Pharaoh, this proud man who wants to make his own laws? Well, God takes care of him with the plagues. And it's so beautiful if you sit back and just analyze, think a little bit about the plagues and what they were doing. God hit him in three areas. He hit Pharaoh in his faith, his economy, and his person. All the plagues can go to one of those, his faith or his religion. Where was the life of Egypt from? Where did life literally come from for the Egyptians? Once a year, the River Nile would flood, wouldn't it? Amen. It would flood down. I mean, most of Egypt is a, you know, is, is a wasteland. It's only right along the Nile, and especially down at the delta, where it's, you have the fertile land. And it, every year, that water would come down and provide for their life. So all the gods of Egypt, you know, like the Ibis-headed god, you know, all the gods of Egypt revolved around the Nile River. So what were the first two plagues from? The first one, what was it? He turned that source of life to blood so that it stank and the fish and it died and all the other ponds around it. What came next? Next you have frogs coming out of it, right? Frogs coming out. Here's the source of life to them. Now it's the source of frustration for them. He hit him in their faith, first of all. What came next? Their economy. He hit him in the pocketbook, right? What came next? We have a, a plague that comes up. Oh, excuse me. We have one more. One more. I almost forgot here. The lice. You say, how did the lice, how was that re regarded with the religion? The lice was the third plague, and what did the, Egypt, the Egyptian magicians who were able to duplicate the first two. What happened when it came to the lice? When it came to the lice, they did their enchantments and nothing happened. And before, they did their enchantments and they turned a pot of water into blood, right? And so Pharaoh could look at that and say, well, yeah, okay, it's nasty there. I mean, my guys can't cure this, but at least they can do the same thing, okay? Well, frogs come forward from, Mo from Moses, well, they can conjure, and yeah, some frogs come forward for them. So, okay, well, yeah, we're on a par, okay? Now, there again, he's not getting any help from his God, from his priest, but at least we're duplicating it. But when the lice come along, what happened? It's real interesting. I have to read the verse. Exodus eight nineteen. Exodus eight eighteen. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Think about that. Every piece of dust becoming lice. Nasty. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there was lice upon man and upon beast. In verse 19, Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Amen. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. His own priests came to him and said, Pharaoh, we're in a, this is a different league from us. We've been faking you out to this point. This is God's hand in this. By the third plague, all his religious men he was trusting in were useless. Not only could they not notice, they, in the first two plagues, they could bring forth the plague, but they couldn't turn it back where Moses could. Now they can't even produce the plague itself of the lice. His faith, what he was counting in, the economy. Next we get a moraine. That's a grievous bunch of boils and diseases on all the animals. And most of the animals of Egypt are destroyed by it. What comes after that? Later on we have hail that comes down and fire running along the ground. 
What animals got spared the moraine got killed in that. And most of the crops that were out got destroyed by that. And then later on, what happens? What crops are left that start coming up, the locusts come and eat all those up. I mean, that's, that's pretty much decimation, right, for an agricultural-based society, which was Egypt. Totally bankrupt. Then it hit his person. You think about the lice. That was kind of a double whammy, right? Not only did, it, did his magicians not do anything about it, but think about his actual state with the lice on him and all his people. And remember, after about the third plague, he could look over at the children of Israel and Goshen, and they weren't being touched by a single one. They were being kept safe from it. I mean, brethren, it's bad enough when you're suffering problems, isn't it? But it's worse when you can see somebody else is being spared from it. Swarms of flies. How many of us like having flies around us at a picnic or something? From the description of this, we're talking about the worst picnic ever imaginable, times ten. Swarms of flies all over the place. Boils that came upon man and beast. I mean, you think about it. You get one infection somewhere in your body, and I mean, it bugs you, doesn't it? You've got to get taken care of. Imagine having your body covered with the things. Darkness that could be felt. Darkness that could be felt. What was that like? Three days of it. Three days of darkness where you could light any candles you wanted to, and it didn't work. It was, you couldn't see. And it could be felt. I mean, think of any horror movies you've ever been in, you know, or thought about. And this is worse than that. And finally, finally the thing that touched home. Any animals you had left, the firstborn died. Any children you had, the firstborn died. In every family in Egypt. In one night's time. God hit him in his faith, hit him in his economy, and hit him in his person. Think about the timing of all this. The first plague occurs, and it tells us about seven days went by after the water was turned to blood. You've got some time there to where you've got a chance to think about this for a minute or two. Then later on, another plague comes. And then another plague comes, and eventually it's getting to where two or three of them are almost rolled back to back, one on top of the other. God's timing. Especially think about the locusts. Think about the locust. God came in with that hail and fire that destroyed man or beast that was outside and all the crops. But it tells us in particular, if you go back and read it, that certain of the crops hadn't grown up yet. So God held it back. We don't know how long. It might have been a week, two, a month. We're not told. He held it back until the remaining crops started to come up out of the ground. And that's when the locust came and hit. You talk about the ultimate timing for disaster that's what God did and what was God's purpose in all of this we've already mentioned it God's purpose was to destroy Pharaoh without remedy to destroy him and you know some people have problems with that some people look at that look at the passage where it tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart you know, and then when I say, well, really what happened is God saw that his heart was going to be hardened and he just kind of helped infuse that. That's the people who want to touch the passages. If you go back to the beginning, it says God was going to harden his heart from the outset. I don't have a problem with that, brethren. Because I understand that God is sovereign. God's in charge of everything. And I just need to submit to his opinions on things. Because he tells me over in Proverbs 16... Proverbs 16 and verse 4, something important about his rulership over this planet, over my life, and over everything about me. Proverbs 16 verse 4 tells me the Lord hath made all things for our good, for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. In this case, he made Pharaoh for the day he was going to judge him and bring him down as an object lesson to all mankind for all time. He tells us this in particular in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. 
I mean, we don't need to be in doubt about it. God tells us flat out. Exodus chapter 9. He's talking to Moses here and telling him. And in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, speaking of Pharaoh, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And you know what? That Paul, the Apostle Paul, our dear brother, picks it up over in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, he picks up on that and provides a good answer to those who have problems with this doctrine. Romans chapter 9, verse 17. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And what's the lesson? Therefore, he, God... Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. And brethren, that's humbling. That's humbling. That's a humbling thought. You know, proud men don't like this, but Paul had an answer for them. Come on down to verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? Oh, if God can humble people, if God can so control them that they do what He wants them to do, even if something stupid that He'll judge it for, why does He find fault? For who hath resisted His will? Now, what's Paul's answer to that? Well, I'm sorry, you just don't understand correctly. Maybe I was a little too hard in what I said there. Now, he comes right on and said, Nay, man, but who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power of the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? Amen. What if God... You want to answer the question of why is there evil in this world? Paul, I'm about to read it to you from his lips. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction. See, he wants to let the whole universe know, angels and men included, he's all-powerful, and he can take people and squash them down like bugs when they displease him. And the glorious part for us, brethren, is what follows. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared in the glory. Oh, but I had to believe, didn't I? Well, as we all know, God had to give you that faith so you could believe because by nature, you didn't want it. You wanted nothing to do with God. You wanted to spit in His face, poke Him in the eye, and do your own thing. See, brethren, the knowledge of God's salvation is humbling. It's humbling. We can't sit there and say, Oh, we're so much better than those people that God's going to destroy in hell. No! We'll look and wonder on that day of judgment and say, Lord, why didn't you put me there? Lord, the best I ever did was nothing compared to what you deserve. Why did you give me that robe of righteousness? Why didn't you give one of them it? He'll say, because it seemed good in my sight. And don't, don't misunderstand me. I, we're not going to be barking against God at that. I'm not. I'm be so thankful if I find myself with one of those white robes. But I'm going to have to admit and say, Lord, there are a whole lot, in, one, in carnal sense, a whole lot better people over there maybe than standing right here. But thank you for your mercy towards me. Amen. God's saints, though, acknowledge it. That's num- man number one. That's what God does to a proud man. My next example is over in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Here we have a proud man who God humbled but showed mercy to. Nebuchadnezzar. And again, I love this chapter. I'd love to go over the details, but we don't have the time. I will trust it to your good judgment if you don't remember the details well enough to read it yourself this week. Have some good spiritual entertainment. Read something good. Focus on that. In essence, chapter 4 is... Nebuchadnezzar telling about his experience, how God humbled him and brought him up. In verses 5 through 18 we have, Nebuchadnezzar described the vision that God gave him. 
and how he went to find somebody to interpret it for him. Verses 19 through 26, we find Daniel who gives him the interpretation. And then in verse 3, we have where Daniel adds his own personal warning to Nebuchadnezzar about the interpretation. Basically, what he does, he sees this tree in a vision, and all the birds come and flock under it, and the animals feed underneath it. And then the word comes, cut that tree down. They cut it down, all the animals leave it, they put a band of iron around it, seven times passes over, then it springs back up to life again. What's the interpretation, Daniel says? It's for your enemies, king, because this is what God's decreed for you. You're going to lose it. He's going to, you're going to be cast out from the presence of man. You're going to live like an animal for seven years. And then God's going to restore you. And his personal word, his personal testimony and counsel to the king was, be aware of what's going to happen and humble yourself and it may not happen. Humble yourself down and God may overlook it and not do it. But sure as the world, he didn't listen. So it comes up time, and what happens? 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar reading, saying this. In a letter he sent to all his provinces of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, here's some other famous last words, right? Is this not great Babylon that I have built? For the house of the kingdom, by the might of my power, and for the honor of my majesty. Sound like anybody you've ever heard? Ain't I the greatest basketball player ever to have lived? Whatever you want to fill in the blank, right? Isn't this great Babylon that I have made? Isn't this a wonderful financial empire that I have put together? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. That very night, that very minute, he hears that voice, an angelic voice, and what happens to him? He loses his sanity. All his counselors who, I mean, he was king, right? How did you treat a king? You treated him with all the deference in the world. You always smiled in his presence. Because if you looked askance at him, all he had to do is nod the wrong way. And they took you out and beheaded you. Now, these same advisors, what do they do? The king's mad. Get him out of the palace. They take him out. Put him outside. And like some wild animal, he goes around. It describes it here as saying his claws, his fingernails glue like eagle's claws. He was a wild man, totally insane, eating grass like a cow. Glorious Nebuchadnezzar, like an animal. They drove him out from the palace. In verse 34, And at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him that liveth forever whose dominion is an everlasting dominion in his kingdom from generation to generation. Amen. And all the inhabitants of the earth, look at his testimony here, brethren, after God humbled him. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Amen. At that same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. Brethren, is that not miraculous? You tell me how many people have gone to a loony bin to get their king. That's exactly what the principles of Babylon did at this time. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty, majesty excuse me, was added unto me. Brethren, he didn't just go out and come back in. He went out and came back in with more majesty. Again, how many people go and get a, somebody out of the loony bin and glorify them even more? People who God is moving. Amen. Especially when that man in the loony bin is praising God and giving him a testimony like this. And again, remember, this is a letter that he wrote out. 
He's sent out by the fastest post to all the corners of the empire to let know what God had done to him. God took away his sanity and then restored it. Took away his position and restored that. And gave him more than he had before. Third man I want to talk about very briefly is a godly man. One of the best kings of the Old Testament. But who did something foolish on an occasion. Turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 32 and let's look at Hezekiah for just a moment. Hezekiah in Second Chronicles chapter 32. And it's funny, I went back and studied kings and you don't even find this listed in kings. This is the only place you find it. This one little place, God tells us this. Second Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 24 through 26. In those days, Hezekiah was sick unto death and prayed unto the Lord. And he spake unto him and he gave him a sign. Now that's recorded in the other account in 2 Kings. But... Now remember, here's Hezekiah. He's dying. The prophet Isaiah comes in and says, put your house in order. You're going to die. What does he do? He turns around. He's on his sickbed. He turns to the wall. He prays to God and says, God, please have mercy on me. Isaiah can't even get out of the outer court before he gets a message from God. Turn back around and give Hezekiah a new message. I've given you 15 years. He goes in and says, King, you've got 15 more years. Take a bunch of grapes. Bunch of figs, excuse me. Put that on the wound and it'll heal. He does it and he gets 15 years. But what happens immediately after that? This passage tells us. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. For his heart was lifted up. Therefore was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Brethren, you've just been given 15 more years. What are you going to do? I'm going to jump and holler about it and tell everybody how good God is if I've got my right mind. What did Hezekiah do? Well, after all, I am a good king. God owes it to me, doesn't he? We've never done that, have we? None of us has ever done anything like that, thinking that any of the blessings God's given us because we earned it and he owes it to us. Notwithstanding, verse 26... Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. He was, he had a moment. He was stupid, but he still had some understanding and used it properly. He said, God, forgive me for that moment. Forgive me for not glorifying you and magnifying what good you've done to me. Have mercy upon me, God. I'm not worthy of the least of your blessings. And all the people did the same thing. And God forgave him. And the judgment he wanted to put on that, he reserved to another time, to a people who were deserving of it. God put spared Hezekiah and the people and put that curse off to somebody else. That's number three. Number four, and notice our progression here. Somebody who has nothing to do for God, cares less, proud and haughty, God destroys him. A pagan king who God decides to show some mercy to and who acknowledges him and his glory becomes more glorious than he was before. A godly man who does have an ill-advised moment doesn't turn around and give God what he deserves, and yet remembers, as it were in time, and asks for mercy, humbles himself, and how God blessed him. Let's go to a a better example. Philippians 3, a man who I've called a sold-out servant of God. How does God treat somebody like that? Or how does somebody like that treat God? Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 4. And I hope, brethren, this is our attitude, this is our heart. I hope we're working towards trying to be like this. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. 
Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Hey, if anybody thinks you got it made, huh, you don't have anything like I do in the flesh. Circumcised the eighth day for the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. What's that saying? I've got the pedigree. I'm from a good tribe. I can trace my lineage. I'm of the chosen people. And I'm zealous. I know my religion and I live it. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And we could add some more things if you turn to other passages of Scripture. See, he was trained by one of the greatest rabbis of his day or any day, Gamaliel. He knew his religion. This was a man who had education. You want PhDs out your arm? Paul had it. Because he could sit there and go to Athens, the center of worldly philosophy, and go toe-to-toe with them. Didn't have to give one inch to them. He could debate them on their own terms, quoting their own minor prophets to them. He could be called into question for his Christianity. The Jews bring a gifted orator, Tertullian, to speak against him. And he could defend himself before a Roman proconsul. We see all this in the book of Acts. But... What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He counted all the degrees, all the pedigree, all the exposure, everything he had as smelly refuse compared to knowing Jesus Christ. That I may win Christ was his goal. Not promote himself, but to know Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That I may know him. What, Paul? You are personally instructed in the desert for three years. You've been able to work miracles. Yeah, but I want to know Christ more that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. I mean, if anybody we read about in the New Testament, outside of Jesus Christ Himself we know of is going to be there at the day of resurrection, it's Paul. But Paul, in his own heart and mind, didn't count himself to already have attained. This is humility, brethren. This is a man who could... He could send out handkerchiefs, right? Handkerchiefs and people got healed by them. Did it go to his head? No. He was looking for Jesus Christ. Is everybody in the world, the Christian world, looked towards him in one sense? Did it matter to him? No. He only looked for one thing, and that's a smile from one being. Jesus Christ. That's all he cared about. Counted all his accomplishments, loss and refuse for Christ. Sought to have Christ's righteousness in his life. Wanted to promote God's power and ways in his life. Notice, even when he had to boast in the ministry, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, where he says, I labored more abundantly than they all, talking about all the rest of the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. I mean, that's, that's, I don't know how you get much better than that. Well, I do. And that's my fifth example. Amen. That's my fifth example, which I almost turned you to a second ago. Same book, over in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And brethren, these are some of the most haunting, beautiful, but haunting and daunting words Amen. in Scripture. Amen. I've known them for a long time, and they scare me. I love them. I want to do them, but they scare me. And yet, by God's grace, we all should be able to do them. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, now, I know that may sound a little confusing, but basically it's saying, well, he was God in the flesh, so (laughs) he's God, right? (laughs) But... Even though he was God, God in the flesh, 
he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Here was the eternal God who spoke the world into existence, who by his own might and power constantly keeps it going even to this day, came down in the form of a man. Brethren, can you think about what it would be like to become an ant? I mean, it's impossible for us to do it, but can you even imagine what it would be like to be an ant? Can you imagine what it would be like to be a microbe? Well, brethren, that's an easier comparison to think of a God becoming man for our puny little brains. Because, see, at least you're creation. You're a creature trying to become like a much lower creature. This is the God of the universe himself coming down as one of his creatures. That's a mystery, brethren, we'll never understand. But we can proclaim it because God's told it to us. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's humility, brethren. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. On that day of judgment, every being, whether it be angel or man, that's going to be cast in the lake of fire, he's going to have to bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. Amen. Everyone will. Brethren, think with me just a second. Here was God in the flesh. He became a man. So he could be the second Adam for us. Consider the condescension of God becoming a man. We can't think too long on that, brethren, because our little pea brain just go tilt, tilt, tilt. We can't conceive of it. Consider, how did he come down as a man? Did he come as a king? He was of kingly lineage, but how did he come? As a lowly carpenter's son. Poor carpenter. So poor, when he came to his hometown to be counted in the census with his pregnant wife, he had no more authority than to find a place in the barn beside the inn. That's where he had to stay. And that's where the Lord of glory was born in human flesh. What city did he live in and was he known for? He wasn't known for being a Bethlehemite. He came from Nazareth. And what was the first thing that one of the disciples himself said when his brother came and said, we, I found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. His first comment was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He came out of a city that was had a reputation for being nothing. But yet he perfectly submitted himself to his father's will in all that he did. Think about his humiliation going to the cross. Here's the being who could call how many legions of angels to defend him? And yet, what happened? He goes before some Roman soldiers who blindfold him, smack him in the face, beat him up, bow the knee, oh, hail, king of the Jews, snicker, snicker, snicker. After they put a crown of thorns on his head, giving him a reed for his scepter, and then they take that reed and smash down that th crown of thorns deeper into his brow, beat him up, mock him, and then strip him naked. When he hung on the cross, brethren, there was no loincloth on him. He was stark naked. What an embarrassing way to die. Hung naked before the crowd. How did he die? Paul was a Roman citizen. As Brother Jim pointed out this morning, we believe from history that he died as a Roman citizen would. Beheaded. How did Jesus Christ die? the most despised way of execution that the Romans could think of. Crucifixion. Whose place did he take to be put on that cross? I mean, Pilate wanted to let him go. So what did Pilate do? He chose himself the lowest of low lives that he thought the people would instantly reject, a man who had committed murder during a seditious act trying to overthrow the government, and he committed murder in the process. And the people said, we want Barabbas instead. So he took the place of a, a lowlife. Who were his companions in his death? 
Two thieves on either side. Brethren, there's nothing glorious in that death. Everything is humbling about it. Yet he went knowing that's what he was going to have to do for us. And God's exalted. What was our verse we started off with this morning? This evening, rather. For whosoever exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You can't get much higher than Jesus Christ, can you? He is the name above all names. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's our example, brethren. Well, we've gone over five men. What lessons can we learn from those five men? What are some of the things we can learn from Pharaoh? I've got three things. Consider them. If you've got better things, that's great. That's wonderful. But one thing is that God is able to take anything and everything away from you. If you're so proud to think that you don't need his help, that you got whatever you got, just remember that. On the day when he does take everything, he gave it to you in the first place. Oh, but I had a good bloodline. Who put you in that bloodline? I am was strong and wise who gave you the body and the brains oh I had opportunities I put myself who gave you those opportunities God did God can take anything and everything away from you two God can do it and will do it at the time best suited to worry vex annoy and terrify you. Amen. God's timing is perfect, brethren. He can do it at just the right time when you can't stand for that thing to go. That's when it goes. I mean, just when you, you're you already, you know, so upset about things, boo, that's when we'll put another little thing in there to goad your side. And God will get himself glory by casting you down casting you down and making you a mockery for everybody else to look at. He thought he was something. Look at him now. Those are some of the lessons we can learn from Pharaoh. Hopefully, those are lessons we can learn and we don't have to experience. What about Nebuchadnezzar? What can we learn from him? On the negative side, brethren, God is giving you mercy right now in this message that you're hearing and every time you read his word he's telling you what he wants from you and that's humility he wants you to bow the knee and acknowledge him in every aspect of your life pay attention to that warning brethren God not only sent that prophet to interpret the dream, but he even had the guts and the concern to tell him, break off your transgressions if God might forgive them before he brings his judgment on you. And brethren, that's what I'm pleading with you tonight, the same way. Humble yourselves now, voluntarily, so he doesn't have to break you. Because he can and will break you. He does his work in this world, brethren, not yours. And he will have us to be humble. That's one of the lessons we've learned tonight. On the positive side, though, brethren, if God has humbled you, or if you are foolish and God has to humble you, if you learn your lesson and will boldly thank him for it, praise him for it, give him the glory for it, He can restore beyond what you ever had before. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had more excellent majesty added to him. Over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, it tells us, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be, I love this, clothed with humility. Surround yourself with humility like a cloak, like a suit you put on. That's how much humble humility you should have. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Brethren, you get down 
voluntarily and humble yourself before Him. Make yourself nothing. Acknowledge that anything and everything in your life that's good is from Him. Do it often. Praise Him for all the goodness He gives you. And He'll exalt you in due time. And if it's not in this life, it'll be in that better life we're all looking for. Hezekiah. What can we learn from Hezekiah? All I want to do is read you a verse of Scripture. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Hezekiah practiced that, and his people practiced it, and they got the blessing. Brethren, wrap your hands around it. Do it. Bring it up to God, and he will bless us. He will bless each of us in our own lives. What can we learn from our brother Paul? If you've got abilities, recognize where they come from and give God the thanks for it. Be more concerned also about the giver, though, than the gifts you've got. Look to Jesus. Center on him in your life. Promote him. What did Paul say in the first chapter of Philippians, verse 21? Does anybody know that verse? We've talked about it often enough. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Brethren, let's make that more than just a memory verse. Make that more than something you've written across your door or you've put on your mirror or somewhere that you look at. Make it part of your life. I need to make it part of my life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Make His priorities your priorities. And finally, from our Lord Jesus Christ. Take His mind to be your mind. That's what Paul was telling us to do. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. If you want some more details about how to do that, Paul tells us over in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any. And here's the kicker. Here's that hard part. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Brethren, you've got the opportunity with everyone in this room. Everyone who's a child of God in this congregation. With every family member you have with the people you run into each day of your life to do this. Oh, but they've done... What did we do to Jesus Christ? Put on these things. Finally, you want a contest? You want to be able to compete? I mean, Americans are great competitors, right? You want something to compete in? Let's see who can lose himself most in doing Jesus Christ's work in service to God. Center on his will and not your own. The last verse I'll read tonight is again from the lips of our blessed Savior who had gone to a city of the Samaritans. He was on going around preaching and teaching and he came to a city of the Samaritans and rested by a well while his disciples went to get some food to feed him. And while he was there, one of his children came along. That woman. That woman of ill repute. Who he knew her thoughts. And in the time that she was there, she learned who the Messiah was. And went off to tell everybody about it. And the disciples come back as the woman's going away, wondering what's going on. He's talking to a Samaritan, a woman Samaritan. And he says, well, master, here we go. Here's lunch. And he says... Don't worry about it. This is New Old Eastland's translation. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. And they start wondering, well, did somebody bring you lunch, Lord? And I won't mess it up. I'll read it. Jesus saith unto them, 
My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Brethren, can we so look at our lives so that even our normal sustenance doesn't matter to us? What we gain strength from is doing God's will. My meat, that which I survive off of, that which I need for help, is to do God's will. Don't you remember some? I hear, I hear something back in the Old Testament about man not living by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. Brethren, let's lose ourselves in God's service. That's humility. If you haven't gotten it by now, I hope I didn't have to lay out a definition for you. I think I've shown it to you. Humility is submitting to God in whatever he wants done in your life. And may God help us to be the humble people he wants us to be. Amen. I saw stand and be dismissed.